Neuroscience Frontier, a podcast of the University of Oklahoma Graduate College Neuroscience Program. For more content, follow us on Twitter at OU Neuroscience. Welcome back to Neuroscience Frontier, the podcast of the OU Neuroscience Graduate Program. We are excited to be back today with another episode of our podcast. I'm Zachary Smith, a neurosurgeon here at the University of Oklahoma, and I'm joined here today with David Sherry, my fellow co-director of the graduate program. We are lucky to have Heather Rice as our guest today on the podcast. Heather is a neuroscience mentor. She's also an OU graduate and native, and a leader in the study of Alzheimer's disease. Dr. Rice obtained her undergraduate training right here at OU and then her PhD in neurobiology from Harvard University. Her academic journey then took her to the Flemish Institute of Biotechnology, also known as VIB in Belgium, for her postdoctoral training. She then returned to OU in the summer of 2019. Heather's research is a significant part of OU's strong standing in the field of geroscience. And as mentioned, she studies Alzheimer's dementia. Before we get going, Dave and I wanted to note a small change in today's podcast. The driving force of our neuroscience program is our students. Today, we are handing over the questions to two of our students, including Fazia and Chase. Thank you, Dr. Rice, for joining us today. I am Fazia Mohammed. I recently graduated from the OUHSC PhD program. I'm currently a postdoctoral trainee in the Department of Neurosurgery, and my mentor is Dr. Zachary Smith. With me today is my colleague, Chase Brown. Hi everyone, this is Chase here. I'm a PhD candidate in neuroscience at OUHSC studying bioinformatics and machine learning in Dr. Jonathan Wren's lab at OMRF. I'm excited to be here today with Dr. Rice and I'm interested to hear more about her research. Thank you for being with us here today. Um, one of the first things that comes up even from the intro is this term geroscience which is a term that a lot of people may not be familiar with. Can, can you tell us a little bit about what geroscience is and, and what the term means? Yeah, absolutely. So geroscience is really the study of aging and the biology behind um, how our body ages, the mechanisms involved, and also a lot about um, the diseases that are associated with aging. A lot of people have heard of Alzheimer's disease and the term dementia, but a lot of folks may not be really familiar with this. Can you tell us a bit about dementia and Alzheimer's disease and sort of what's going on with those conditions? Yeah, so that's a great question. So dementia is really, you know, cognitive decline um, seen primarily in, in aging individuals. And, and Alzheimer's disease is, is a type of dementia. So, and what is, is required to classify it as Alzheimer's disease is really the presence of two major pathologies in the brain, and that is amyloid plaques and tau tangles. So it's my understanding that there are two main research directions in the field of Alzheimer's disease, which are centered upon these two different proteins, amyloid beta and tau, which uh, are for extracellular and intracellular considerations. Is this an accurate framing of the field? And what are your reasons for much of your work being focused on amyloid beta rather than tau? Yeah, so I think in some ways it's a bit of a simplistic or even a bit of a dated view on sort of um, the current framing of the field. So in the past, there was a lot of heated debate in the, in the field about tau versus A beta, even to the extent of, 
you know, sort of jokingly calling these two camps, the Taoists versus the Baptists. Um, in my view, the field has in large part moved past this rather simplistic view of the disease and recognized that yes, both of these proteins do play important roles in the disease. Um, but also the field has begun to appreciate the complexity of the disease. So these biochemical insults, tau and a beta, unleash a plethora of cellular responses from not only neurons, but also astrocytes, microglia, and even microvasculature of the brain. And so this idea that I'm kind of referring to has been uh, coined the cellular phase of Alzheimer's disease. Um, actually coined as that by my postdoc mentor, Dr. Bart Destroper. And I think this also, this idea of the cellular phase of Alzheimer's also kind of captures where the major research directions are in the field. So the field has, has shifted a bit to studying, you know, these cellular processes, the neurocircuitry, the neuroinflammation, neurovascular changes that we see in Alzheimer's disease, and how these different processes and cell types interact with one another and are affected by these biochemical insults like A, beta, and tau, as well as um, other important important players that have been uh, more recently discovered in the disease, such as APOE and TRIM2. I've seen several descriptions of Alzheimer's disease from an immunological perspective, wherein amyloid beta is a protein that agglomerates over viral and bacterial agents. Is this an appropriate or helpful perspective for understanding Alzheimer's disease, and what are your thoughts on this uh, research direction scientifically? Yes, absolutely. So there's been a huge uh, focus recently on neuroinflammation and Alzheimer's disease. That's absolutely right. And for really good reason, there's been a number of risk factors identified in what are sporadic forms of the disease, um, and that, such as TRIM2 that I mentioned. And these are involved in neuroinflammation and astrocyte and microglial functions in the brain. There's also a lot of data indicating that amyloid beta is, is pro-inflammatory and, and initiates inflammation in the brain. And yes, as you mentioned, there's also some interesting studies suggesting actually that amyloid beta is antimicrobial. And so um, my A beta have this dual protective but also damaging role when it comes to immunological responses, I, th I think is very interesting. And in general, I think the role of neuro neuroinflammation in Alzheimer's disease is a very important area of research. And also a new area uh, for myself that I've recently moved a little bit into um, and looking at various roles of the amyloid precursor protein. First of all, tell us about your research interest and what your lab is working on. Yeah, so my research from my PhD, actually through my postdoc and now the projects in my lab that I'm establishing, all really center around a protein called the amyloid precursor protein or APP for short. And the reason I've been so interested in this protein is that this is a protein, it's located on the surface of cells and it actually gets cut um, by enzymes to release various fragments of that protein. And one of those fragments you've probably heard of um, is the amyloid beta peptide. And this, this peptide can aggregate to form toxic oligomeric species and also become deposited in what are known as amyloid plaques. So amyloid plaques are one of the two main hallmarks of Alzheimer's disease. And so while A-beta itself is really highly studied and is being targeted even for therapeutic strategies to treat the disease, what the protein from which A-beta is derived from and what all these other fragments that are also produced from this protein, what those are normally doing in the brain has been a real enigma in the field. And so my work has been trying to understand 
how amyloid precursor protein functions in the brain. And um, there's a particular fragment composed of the part of the protein that sticks outside of the cell um, that seems to be highly biologically active. And so during my postdoc, I made a major breakthrough in understanding how that fragment functions in the brain. And we found that that fragment binds what's called the GABA-B receptor. This is a known receptor for the inhibitory neurotransmitter GABA. And we found that this binding of APP to the GABA-B receptor regulates how neurons talk to one another at, at the synapse. And so now in my lab, we're trying to better understand this interaction that we've discovered and also how this interaction affects other cellular processes in the brain and other cell types in the brain. How did you get interested in studying Alzheimer's disease? So yeah, I think it first goes back actually to when I was an undergraduate at OU, and there's two main kind of situations I, I can share with you. So the first was for an assignment for actually an English class, and we had to interview someone who worked out in the community um, at an organization or charity and then write an essay about that interview. And so I chose someone who worked at a senior adult daycare center in Norman, and hearing about her passion uh, for helping the elderly and, and what she did eventually led me to volunteer there at that senior adult center once a week and led to me meeting for the first time and becoming close with individuals with dementia or Alzheimer's disease. And so that's where some of um, the passion for me on the personal level came from. And then the second instance kind of brings in the science of it. So about that same time um, as an undergrad in a genetics course, we had to do a presentation on a disease. And so I chose Alzheimer's disease. Um, and I still remember vividly that uh, presentation and, and the discussion and questions afterwards. And I remember not being satisfied by the answer that I could give for, for what this amyloid precursor protein does, this protein that in familial cases of the disease, which is a minority, less than 5% of cases, do have um, a genetic um, gene mutation. And one of those is in the APP of, well, what does this protein do in the brain? And and back then, you know, 15 or so years ago, we knew even less than we do today about that. And so it's actually been since almost that time that I have been studying exactly that question of what this protein does in the brain, with ultimately the hope that this understanding this question might provide some new insights to eventually help people like whom I'd met at that senior adult day center. Are there any robust preventative measures that can be taken to reduce the probability of getting Alzheimer's later in life? I've seen over the years that sleep is suggested to remove these built-up protein aggregations within the brain. Um, are these suggestions to sleep more um, and get better sleep, are they well-founded and what's the science behind those? So there's a saying that I think um, is really helpful here of what's good for your heart is good for your brain because I think most people are aware of the type of things that are, that are good for heart health. So eating a healthy diet, physical, physical exercise, and I'll add to that exercising your brain, so keeping your brain active. And yes, you bring up some a, a very interesting point about sleep. So there's, there is some really convincing data, um, actually both in animal models and human studies. Um, a lot of these are coming out of the Holtzman Group at Washington University in St. Louis, um, showing that sleep is, is also very important. So they show that disrupted sleep led to um, increased A-beta production as well as decreased A-beta clearance, so overall a net gain in A-beta. Um, and they find also similar results for tau. 
Um, so also to you busy graduate students, don't forget to get that sleep as well. In your professional view, what's uh, one of the more exciting, scientifically novel technologies for treating Alzheimer's disease that shows a lot of promise, even if it's far from clinical development? Let me tell you about an area that I'm, I'm excited about in, in my research and in my lab. Um, and yes, this is something you know far from the clinic, something we're looking at on the basic research side. But what we're finding is that the normal functions of that part of that amyloid precursor protein that I told you about that we're studying, those functions may actually be beneficial in the context of Alzheimer's disease. Because what we're seeing and other groups are seeing is that the functions of that fragment are actually opposite of the effects of that toxic A-beta um, fragment found in those amyloid plaques. Um, and we're finding this in multiple cellular processes and multiple cell types. Um, and additionally, we've, we've identified a short protein sequence that is sufficient to mimic those effects. And so, so while this is something, you know, certainly far from clinic, we're excited to be working on how to leverage these functions of this beneficial APP fragment to potentially counteract the toxic effects of the amyloid beta peptide. Uh, speaking of treatments, there is a new FDA-approved drug at Durham from Biogen that is making a lot of headlines in the news. What can you say about it? Yeah, so Edruhelm is, as you said, a recently approved drug for Alzheimer's disease, and this targets the amyloid beta pathology. So it is an antibody targeted to the amyloid beta peptide and what it has been shown to do is convincingly remove these amyloid plaques from the brain. And it's on the basis of that endpoint, the removal of plaques from the brain, which the FDA deemed would be expected to lead to cognitive benefits, that it was approved under the FDA's accelerated approval program. And so that's essentially where the controversy lies with this drug, that it has not yet convincingly shown major cognitive benefit. And so this accelerated approval program does require further trials to demonstrate this cognitive benefit or else the approval can be withdrawn. And so I think it is important for people to realize um, that this drug is likely not the big home run that we are all wanting. Um, but it is my hope at least that this represents a starting point or an important step towards making a real difference for individuals suffering from this disease. Uh, perhaps this will open the door for, for identifying certain subpopulations that this drug is effective for. Perhaps this will lead to preventative or combination therapy approaches that might be more effective, or perhaps just an improved uh, version of this down the line. You have a very impressive profile. You've transitioned from a training position to having your own lab. How did you get to where you are today? Yeah, that's a good question. I think, you know, I owe it mostly to fantastic mentors. Mentors who gave me opportunities to just be involved in their research programs. And that taught me through those opportunities how to be a rigorous scientist, a creative scientist, a curious scientist. Um, and that all started right here in Oklahoma as an undergraduate. So the Fleming Scholar Program at OMRF, which is a summer research program, uh, internship program, which is, which is really important for, for um, bringing on future scientists. Um, this was where I gained my first experience in a research lab, the first time I ever used a pipette. And it's also where I first absolutely fell in love with and became passionate about science and research. And so then from there, I had a fantastic mentor on the OU Norman campus 
Dr. Hughes, who led me, who, who let me gain research experience in his lab for then the next three years of my undergraduate um, studies. And he provided me with a lot of guidance and really valuable in helping me get to that next level, um, which would be a PhD. Um, so then for both of my PhD and postdoc, I had joint positions between two labs. And I had these extraordinary sort of duos as co-mentors. In both instances, I had one mentor that was a world's leader, senior expert in Alzheimer's disease. At Harvard, that was Denis Selko, and at VIB in Belgium, that was Bart de Stroper. Both taught me so much um, from their perspectives about the field and really taught me to think about the big picture implications of what I was doing. And then each time I also had a mentor that was someone who's, who was in a similar position to what I am now. Um, so just starting their labs. And so at, at Harvard, that was um, Tracy Young Pierce. And in Belgium, that was Joris De Witt. And so I got to see two very successful examples of really how to build a lab and what goes into that. And so now as I'm trying to do the same, um, it's, it's been a really good example and, and really helped me in this transition time. And, you know, aside from those influential mentors, if I think more introspectively about how I got to this point, um, it wasn't an easy process. Um, I don't think it is for anyone. And I think one key for me was having persistence through ambiguity. So there isn't always a clear path forward um, at the bench and research. What, what is the next experiment? There's always not always one correct answer. Um, also in the career itself, there's not really a good blueprint of, of the right way to, to, to become a PI. And so sometimes you just have to be able to push forward and being able to develop that ability to, to do that, even through sort of ambiguity was, was I think one key to getting to where I, I am today. So you mentioned a lot of faculty and mentors while you're training. Who made the most impact during your training and how? Yeah, so that's a difficult question because I, I truly, you know, each of my mentors uh, influenced me um, a lot in my career, but I'd, ha I'd have to put um, Dr. Dennis Selko and also Dr. Bart DeStroper really at the top of that. So, so Dr. Selko was my PhD mentor, and he's the type of mentor that just makes you excited about science. So I think one of the most valuable things um, that, that um, I had with him for, as a mentor was that I always came out of meetings feeling more excited and more motivated than when I went in. And I think you know, that really makes all the difference as, as a graduate student. Um, he also gave me the opportunity to meet my future PhD advisor, which was Bart DeStroper. So um, he was, Dennis was always good about introducing me to his network and, and when speakers came in, uh, such as Bart, I, I often got to meet with them and show, the, show them my data. And I remember after that telling Dennis that, you know, I'd, I'd really want to do a, a postdoc in Bart's lab if, if he wasn't all the way in Belgium. And so I remember him saying to me, you know, Heather, you can go to Belgium if you want to. And, you know, that seems probably pretty obvious, but, but I always took what, what Dennis said to heart. And I think I wouldn't have really given it as deep a thought as I did if he wouldn't have said that. And so, you know, I ultimately um, decided that that could be, you know, a great next step. And I ended up um, going to visit and interviewing and just um, um, 
felt that that was the right place and was excited to go to Belgium. Um, and then so, so Bart de Stroper was also then a fantastic mentor during my postdoc. So he challenged me when I needed him to. He also showed compassion when I needed him to. Um, but I think I'm most grateful um, for the way that he supported me in my transition to establishing my own independent lab and, you know, supporting and helping me in every way possible, letting me take, you know, my project with me to build on further independently in my own lab. Since we're on the subject of mentoring, mentoring graduate students is a bit like raising children or puppies. It's exhausting and it's really, really messy. I haven't done either of those things, though. So. <laughs> It is. It's, <laughs> trust me. Uh, you've recently started mentoring students in your own lab. So how is that going? What are you learning from the experience? And what's the biggest challenge? Yeah, so it's, it's going really well. I'm really happy with the team that I've built um, in the two years I've been here. We have a couple technicians, a, a, a neuroscience PhD student who's the first student to join the lab, and then also an MD-PhD student who's been uh, rotating with us. So I, I'm really thankful to have this like fantastic group of people um, working together um, that I've been able to build. And um, I think one of the biggest challenges is now doing for my mentees what my mentors did for me. So um, really helping inspire them to, to keep going in the face of adversity. Um, communication is absolutely key. Um, when you become a mentor and, and how to um, train people and, and keep them asking um, the, the interesting questions and knowing what to do next without just telling them point blank, this is what you do, this is what you do, but getting them, them into that process is, is really the goal. And so that's also the biggest challenge of how to do that for each individual person is not always the same way. And finding what works for each individual mentee is, is, is a challenge, but is ultimately what, what you're trying to do as a good mentor. So I noticed you have a large diversity of universities in some of your latest articles. They came out of France and Belgium, Egypt, Israel, London, Chicago, New Jersey. Um, how do you build and maintain this large uh, social network that allows for such large-scale work over the world? So I think the mobility that I've had throughout my career has played a large part in building that network. And then importantly, having mentors that I've talked a lot about um, at each of those institutions that have introduced me and included me in their larger networks has also been key. Um, also conferences are a great um, thing to take advantage of, of the opportunities there to network. That's been key in helping me sort of maintain and build new networks also on my own. Um, that has been more challenging over the last year or so to try to, to do that virtually. So I'm, I'm very much looking forward to getting to do those types of things uh, more in person in the future. But what's really exciting now is actually to see my network expanding because of the classmates and colleagues that I had throughout grad school and postdoc training them, they are also moving on in their careers and to other institutions all over the U.S. And, and the world. And I think that's something to keep in mind for students and postdocs is that your colleagues, your friends that you have around you right now is a large part of how you build your future network. Um, and so keeping those connections and, and trying to foster collaboration and support among each other 
um, not only pays off now to have that sort of support, but in the future, that's your network that then you also then pass down to your future mentees and include them in that network. So during your training and now that you have a lab, do you have any major setbacks or failures and how did you recover from that? Yeah, I mean, so I think that's kind of inevitable in this line of work. I think, you know, for everyone it's filled with, there's, there is a lot of exciting ups, uh, but there's also some downs. I try not to look at them actually as failures because it's really just part of that process, the learning process. Um, but looking back, I guess I'd have to say there was a big stretch during my postdoc where I didn't have a first author publication. So I started my postdoc in 2013, and then my first first author paper didn't get published until 2019. So that's six years without a first author publication. A lot of people would see that as a failure, and now that I say it like this, it, it, it certainly does seem like a failure. But I mean, in reality at the time, actually the project was going really well. Um, we thought we had, we'd come upon a really impactful finding. We wanted to really dig deeper into that and, and really work out the complete picture of what, what was happening. And so, and then it also took a, a while to publish. We had some setbacks there. So I think it was um, around two years from when we initially submitted the first manuscript to when this, this project was, was published and in press. And so um, there were setbacks along the way. Um, and it was often challenging as a postdoc when the clock is ticking. You're, you, you, my goal was to be a PI and to be an academic position, the next position after, you know, that postdoc. And so, you know, when you're in the middle of that, you're thinking, well, how do I make that next step? Is that, am I going to come out of this? Is that actually going to happen? Um, and so I did ultimately recover that, I mean, that paper, it paid off to push through um, it got published in Science, a high impactful journal. And then we had, I had a second first author paper that uh, got published soon after that. And that was a project that I was working on. So ultimately, you know, I pushed through, it worked out. I, we, we got this great story published that got um, a lot of interest in the field. And, and you know, I'm, I'm ultimately here and, and what my goal was to, to, to be a PI and have my own lab. So you've traveled all over the world and now you're back to Oklahoma. Why did you decide to come back? Yeah, so a big reason I came back to Oklahoma is to be a part of the growth in brain aging and neurodegenerative disease research that is happening on campus. So we already have a really strong aging program here with a lot of top scientists in the aging field. Um, in fact, we are home to, to one of only eight of the NIA's Nathan Shock centers on aging um, across the US. And now there's really a lot of momentum towards an emphasis on neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's, um, especially through the formation of a new center. So we're forming the Oklahoma Center for Geroscience and Healthy Brain Aging. And so it was really appealing to me to be able to come back and be a part of moving that forward in my home, in my home state. And, and to be in a position, even at the level of being a young assistant professor, that I could actually have an influence on that trajectory, um, that's really motivating to me. And also that when I thought about being a mentor myself, there's really no other place in Oklahoma that I care more about giving back and helping to train future neuroscientists. So as trainees, what advice can you give us to help us plan a career rather than just a job? Yeah, so I think, I think the difference really comes into that it's all about continually learning and challenging yourself. 
So don't be afraid to get outside of your comfort zone. Uh, I think the single piece of advice I would give is that when thinking about perhaps the next step that you make in your career, um, is to try to make a change in at least one area. That could be the sort of science or field that you're studying. That could be the type of technique you're using. That could be the type of mentor you have, for instance, an early career versus late career or their mentorship style, or it could be the location or institution you're at. I think some people try to sometimes give this blanket advice of make sure you don't stay at the same institution or, or you know, don't go outside of your field. But I you know, think we have to appreciate that everybody's situation is different and what's actually best for their career and for their growth is different. But it is important to have some change so that you challenge yourself and continually grow and learn and develop all those tools and those skills that you need to be um, to have a successful career. And, and that's really what makes it different is, is not thinking about what you're the most qualified for, but actually what's gonna make you the most qualified in the future. So what's that technique or that area or some kind of skill that you need to help you to reach your future career goals and be successful? So one of the things I know about you is that you grew up in a small town here in Oklahoma, a little town called uh, Watonga, which yep. is an hour, hour and a half or so west of Oklahoma City. And one of the things about small towns is that they develop their own little personalities. And one aspect of Watonga's personality is this thing called the Watonga Cheese Festival. Yeah. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about Watonga and the Cheese Festival and how this all fits into life. Yeah, so, so Watonga was a great place to grow up. Um, in many of my changes throughout my career, um, not only going to different countries, even going from Watonga to OU was a big change. Um, population is about 3,000. I had 50 in my graduating class. My lab in Belgium was at least probably that many as my graduating class. Um, but what we're most well known for is cheese. So if people have heard of Watonga around Oklahoma, they know us because of cheese. Uh, we actually have a cheese festival coming up in October. Um, but um, kind of a fun fact, although maybe not so fun, is that actually Watonga cheese is not made in Watonga anymore. It's still called Watonga. It's, it's been outsourced now to Texas. Outsourced is probably the wrong, the wrong word. But this actually kind of, the, the moving of Watonga cheese outside of Watonga kind of collided um, time-wise with my um, career progression. So the weekend that I had moved from Oklahoma to Boston, a tropical storm had regathered over Watonga and basically took out the cheese factory. And so since then, the, the owners had, had put it on their, their, um, their dairy farm in Oklahoma. So I guess, I guess Oklahoma couldn't handle Heather being out of Oklahoma and, and, and cheese. So everything just kind of exploded at, at that point. But, but we still, Watonga cheese is, is, is being made. We have a festival, it's a lot of fun. I think now they include um, some wine and, and some other fun things as well. So it's, it's a great place to grow up. And, and if, if you're gonna visit Watonga, Watonga cheese festival is the time to do that. And that's generally October. It's October, yeah. yeah. I should know the date and I could, I could plug it right here. But. <laughs> yeah. All right. So um, thank you very much. Uh, it's been a very interesting conversation that we've had. We've covered uh, a wide range of topics. And, and so um, I want to thank you. I want to thank Fauzi 
for coming in and thank Chase for helping us. Uh, and as always, we are um, in the neuroscience program here looking for good students who can help us brain better. So uh, if you're interested, get in touch. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you, Chandy. And also, thank you. Thank you for the invitation. It's been fun chatting with you and, and really I appreciate the, the thoughtful um, questions from you. It's, it's been fun to discuss. Yeah. All right. Thank you. If you're interested in learning more about neuroscience and neurosurgery here at the University of Oklahoma Health Sciences Center, you can find more information at the Neurosurgery and Neuroscience webpage at medicine.ouhsc.edu.